Blog Talk Radio. again, we're coming to you live from the Eastern Radio Studio in St. Augustine, Ponte Vedra, Florida. We've been doing this now for eight and a half years. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have a great show for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome, and we do have many listeners listening every Monday evening from many countries around the world. Join us as we celebrate the life of Eastern Airlines every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Hello, Eastern family and friends. As our producer said, it's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright, and I'm coming to you live from the beautiful villages in Central Florida, we have the largest retirement center in the world. The weather here today was a balmy 83 degrees, felt like 90, but it's gonna cool off a little later after the thunderstorms leave us and go up to New York, I understand. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show. You've truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say, uh-oh. I lost my program. Here it is. Oh, we became East Airlines International Radio Show. Over 50 uh, countries are listening in now. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello and talk to us on the air. We're live every Monday evening. We can identify many countries around the world and listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can hear the Eastern legacy going out to not only the Eastern family, but to, East, but to listeners from many different countries around the world? That's what we're trying to do every week on the Eastern Radio Show. Want you, want you, we want you to join us by adding your voice to our broadcast. Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.easternradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. 
Remember to abbreviate the word CAPTAIN to C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our, our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visits, 213-816-1611. By the way, tell your friends about us. Our membership is growing. We're well over 1,000 people now. Don't forget, you can listen to any of our 423 Monday night broadcasts and 75-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's E-D-D-I-E. And scrolling down through the archives of the broadcast. Each episode is briefly described. We're over 500 episodes now from our Eastern Files and Eastern Old Time Radio Series. Holy blue Sunoco, as Jim Hart likes to say. And Jim, hurry up, get well, and come take over your announcing job. We miss you, and we hope you're feeling a lot better. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you wish not to participate and talk live with our host, you can we can ask you to please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. I see we're number one for takeoff, so Captain, let's get our flight 423 in the air. Tower Blur is 650, we'll up. Sunday in Mexico, the sun floods an arena, the historic duel is on, the sun spotlights a diver at Acapulco, referees a children's game at the pyramid of Teotihuacan, the sun warms a beautiful mermaid in Puerto Rico and covers the vacation paradise of Miami. Every year, more people choose this one for the sun because Eastern service is as warm as the destination. Hello, folks. Last week, we presented uh, part one of a series that we're doing in three parts. The first was, uh, and the, uh, the uh, tonight's show will be part two, and we have the final segment of the last heartbeats of an American legacy airline, the final days of Eastern Airlines. And we put this together from the continuing saga of Eastern Continental Texas Air from February 1986 to July of 1991. And uh, we've added some comments, but tonight is part two 
of this series. Don? Thank you, Neil. Good evening, everybody. On September 3rd, 1990, the Miami Herald reported that on August 25th in Atlanta, Eastern boarded 27,463 passengers, compared to Delta's 27,636 passengers. However, Delta had 64,590 available seats, compared to Eastern's 41,069 available seats. Are things about to change for Eastern and once again be the dominant carrier in Atlanta? Eastern is now bringing in more of the cities it once served. September 6, 1990, Eastern started nonstop service out of Atlanta to Dallas, Roanoke, and Harrisburg. Although Eastern had previously served Dallas and Roanoke, it was the first time serving uh, service going to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The airline is not finished with making changes. On September 11, 1990, is the 557th day of the strike that began on March 4, 1989. It also marks near the end of Marty Chagru's 100 days to try to make Eastern a more viable airline. <clears throat> a new program was announced to introduce a corporate business rate for first-class travel that is about 15 to 35% cheaper than the regular full coach fare of most airlines. To accomplish this, first-class section of airplanes will be enlarged and updated. The first 757 airplane well, the changes were presented today in Miami in Hangar 22 to all the employees. I was there. September 17, 1990, Eastern announced that effective November 1, 1990, that a new daily nonstop flight would be started between Newark and Ponce, Puerto Rico. Jim? Yeah, thank you, Dan. Don. There's good news for the employees also. September 18, 1990, there was a $710, I assume that would be millions or something, settlement will assure pensions for 51,000 present and former workers of Eastern Airlines. The Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation of BD Federal Agency, that was the PDGC, will assume management of Eastern's pension plans when they are terminated on October 1990. Continental Airlines Holdings, Inc. immediately put up $80.5 million, and Eastern agreed to pay $30 million out of its bankruptcy account, $8 million in October, and the rest by January the 15th, 1991. Continental has agreed to pay up to $600 million of the $710 million settlement, of which it will have paid $378 million by the mid-1990s by making monthly payments of 4 to $5 million for 12 years in 1991. And I might comment, uh, I was involved, I retired by then, and instead of my pension going up, it was going down. I don't understand that. But it's not the same. Effective October the 90, 1990, East will terminate all future retirement benefits. 
This means that retirement benefits will not be funded beyond September 1990, and they will receive only benefits earned prior to that time. This would apply to active employees and early retirees who received a supplement from Eastern receiving Social Security. Now, on September 27, 1990, the airline industry has seen a price of jet fuel rise from 55 cents a gallon to over 90 cents since the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait on August 2nd. On September 25th, Trustee Martin Chagruz urged presidential intervention to ease the impact of the oil price run-up. Chagruz said that the increased price had already cost Eastern $5 million to $10 million a month and is hampering the airline's efforts to rebuild. Mike, what do you got to say? Okay, well, on October 6, 1990, the Miami Herald reported that Eastern is negotiating to sell or lease its fleet of 13 Lockheed 1011s to the Soviet national carrier Aeroflot. The package under discussion would be worth between 150 and $200 million. The company owns 10 1011s and leases three others. October 9, 1990, Delta Airlines offered to buy 18 of Eastern's 51 gates at, at the Atlanta Hartsfield International Airport. The offer is understood to be worth $30 million. On October 23, 1990, Trustee Martin Chagru declared that Eastern can break even by February 1991 because of its offer of first-class seats for the coach fares and provided that the fuel cost averages $1.05 per gallon. Chagru also stated that five airlines, American, America West, Delta, United, and U.S. Air, have expressed interest in buying selected assets. In addition to Eastern having talks with Northwest, Pan Am, and TWA concerning very specific assets. In a non-related item, it was reported that Continental Holdings Chairman Hollis Harris wants to remove Continental Airlines president and four top officials who were previously allied with Frank Lorenzo. A Continental spokesman denied the rumors that Continental was filing for bankruptcy. Chuck? October 26, 1990, Alpha announced that Captain Randy Babbitt, an Eastern captain with 24 years of service, had been elected president of Alpha. Randy's father, the late Captain Slim Abbott, Babbitt, I'm sorry, one of Eastern's pioneer pilots was very active in ALPA during his career and was vice president of ALPA for some time. November 1st, 1990, Continental and Delta reported that they were having talks on possible sale of some Continental's international routes to Delta. Trustee Martin Segru reported that several groups were interested in buying the Eastern Express from Eastern Two of the groups were made up of former officers from Eastern Express. November 10, 1990, Trustee Martin Segrus was reported that to have requested the bankruptcy court for $30 million more of Eastern's operating expenses. The matter will be taken up on November 14th with the creditors' committee and the bankruptcy court judge. At this meeting, the bankruptcy court, Judge Burton Lifflin, listened to an impassionate plea from Martin Saru and granted Eastern $15 million from the escrow fund. With the understanding that if Eastern meets its revenue projections, 
he would release another $15 million in two weeks. He ordered officials to return for another hearing on December the 3rd, 1990. The Unsecured Creditor Committee had recommended against providing any additional funds from the escrow account and had publicized that decision. November 26, 1990, Eastern, which less than two weeks ago fought off its creditors' push for liquidation, now said it needed more than $100 million to operate through March 1991. At the hearing on November 14th, Judge Liflin gave Eastern $15 million and stated that it could have another $15 million on December 3rd if it met its operating projections. Grew had stated that he would that he would need 40 million in mid mid December and another 10 million in January. After that, Eastern would, would have to would be breaking even. Yes, but Chuck, on November 28, 1990, in response to a request from Trustee Chagrew, Judge Lifflin ruled that Eastern could draw 120 million from its escrow account through next March, with another $15 million available as a contingency fund. Chagru stated that by asking for enough money to last through March, he hoped to avoid the notoriety that Eastern receives each time it draws upon its cash reserve. Eastern creditors contended that Eastern's cash reserves should be distributed to its creditors. But Lifflin said his decision was guided for concern for the public interest and that 18,000 Eastern employees will suffer if Eastern goes out of business. As of November 24th, Eastern had $252 million in escrow. Of that, $50 million had been set aside to reimburse travelers in case of an emergency. And another $20 million had been promised to the Pension Benefit Warranty Company if the $130 million now granted to Eastern fails to make Eastern a break-even airline, as projected by Trustee Chagrew. There will only be $37 million left in the escrow account. November 30, 1990, Joe Leonard, Senior VP Operations and Chief Operating Officer for Eastern, resigned as the number two man for Eastern. Leonard was with Eastern for six, six and a half years. Leonard, who came to Eastern with 17 years of airline experience, was president for a short period prior to the time that Frank Lorenzo named Phil Bates president and made Joe Leonard an executive vice president. Okay, uh, on December 2nd, 1990, Continental Airlines Holding filed for bankruptcy under Chapter 11. Continental Airlines Chairman Hollis Harris announced that there would be no disruption of flight schedules and that there would be no layoffs planned. He further stated, that Continental does not want to sell off any big assets except for its food division. Complicating the attempt to recognize the airline will be a $700 million claim except expected to be made by the Pension Benefit Gratuity Corporation. 
That agency took over the pension plan for Eastern in October after Continental's holding agreed to finance shortfalls over 12 years. Continental's debt was reported to be $2.9 billion. <clears throat> December 4, 1990, the Pension Benefit Fortuity Corporation issued a news release to the effect that the previous agreed plan to fully fund Eastern's various pension plans was no longer valid because of Continental's filing for Chapter 11. We're going to talk more about this later on. I don't know why we didn't expect this. <clears throat> December 5, 1990. Eastern announced that service would be renewed to San Antonio, Texas, and Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. Effective January 31, 1991, with three nonstop flights per day, each to destinations from Atlanta. There will be also one flight per day to and from San Antonio to LaGuardia. December 10, 1990. Martin Chigru, trustee for Eastern Airlines, announced that Robert Gould, presently Senior Vice President of Pan American Airways, is leaving that airline to replace Joe Leonard. Chigru announced that Gould would be, become President of Eastern and Chief Operating Officer. Gould joined Pan Am as a pilot in 1965 and knew Chigru, who had joined Pan Am in 1968 as a pilot. Prior to joining Pan American, Gould was a Marine pilot for five years. At one point in his career, Gould, as an Alpha representative, was negotiating with Chigru, who at the time was negotiating labor contracts for Pan American. It sure is nice to have friends in the airline business. Jim? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you talk to some Pan Am pilots uh, if you want to on the side about what happened when Pan American declared bankruptcy and where their pilots went. Okay, I'll get off of that. December the 15th, 1990, the U.S. Attorney General attorney in Brooklyn is investigating charges that Eastman continued to falsify maintenance records in Miami and Atlanta after Martin Chagru's appointment as a trustee in April. The allegations which Chagru vehemently denied are contained in an affidavit supporting a search warrant for a December 1st raid at Miami headquarters for maintenance records. I think I might have been involved in a little bit at the sideline. The document was unsealed on Friday to December the 14th. A grand jury in Brooklyn in July fired charges on 60 criminal charges against Eastern and nine managers. Segru stated that the FAA's most recent inspection revealed that Eastern was safe and that there was no evidence to suggest that maintenance records were being falsified. My goodness. December the 18th, 1990, Eastern sales for $10 million American its route authority between New York, Miami, and Montreal, Ottawa, along with 10 arrival and departure slots at LaGuardia. The deal also includes base facilities at Montreal's Norvale Airport and at Orlando, Nashville, and Hartford in an unrelated action. American bought from TWA the authority to operate from several cities in the U.S. to London. December 20th, 1990. The Circuit Court of Appeals upheld Jervis's opinion, Judge Davis's opinion, 
of August 1989, which it stated that returning Eastern pilots had priority over new hires who had not yet completed training at that time. Eastern had 20 days to appeal the decision and stated they would appeal. Mike, what happened? Yes, on December 21st, 1990, a group headed by former Eastern Express President Jack Robinson had signed a tentative agreement by Eastern Express. The group wants to buy the airline for between 15 and 20 million. That number includes cash and the assumption of debt. The arrangement must be approved by the U.S. Bankruptcy Court. And December 27, 1990, Eastern announced that a contract had been signed with the U.S. government for Eastern to be the carrier used for government employees between 345 city pairs in 1991. The value of the contract was estimated to be between 82 and 100 million. And on December 31st, 1990, Eastern announced that it was recalling 60 pilots who had gone on strike on March 1989 had not flown for Eastern since that time. And they will be start retraining on January 15th, 1991. However, the recall of 60 pilots who had gone on strike in March 1980 had been postponed by Eastern until January 29th. January 3rd, 1991, David Nunsler, Senior Vice President for the Planning for Eastern, announced that he would retire very soon. Nussler is one of the few remaining officers with Eastern who served under Frank Borman and was originally hired by Floyd Hall shortly after Hall came to Eastern in 1963. January 14, 1991, the Flight Attendants Union, TWU, is to vote on a new contract submitted by Eastern several days ago. The vote is due by January 16th. Chuck? The heart beats slower. January 15, 1991. Wall Street Journal carried a story stating that Eastern may have to shut down by next week because of lack of cash and the inability to sell off any of its assets. The story was denied by trustee Martin Shugru, who stated that he was in, con- in contact with two groups who were desirous of obtaining certain properties of Eastern. Very next day, January 16, 1991, Mr. Robert Gould, the new Eastern president, 35 days on the job, too, spoke before the ERE executive committee and about 100 ERA members in the auditorium in Building 16 on the eastern Miami base. Gould, who graduated from Yale, was in the Marines for six years and with Pan Am for 25 years, from pilot to labor leader to executive vice operations, stated that he'd brought in operation review team, wanted to resolve the labor issue. He briefly explained some of the operation business plans that his task force was developing. One of the key points in the plan was was to optimize revenue by placing flights in the most productive areas. Overall, there could be up to 3,000 personnel laid off, more maintenance in Atlanta, the reduction in the layers of management, and the reduction in the number of vice presidents. He came across as very sincere and dedicated to his job. While admitting that Eastern had a long way to go to be a viable airline, he praised the employees highly and felt that if time permitted, EAL would emerge as an airline. He also stated that 
Eastern had several alternatives before folding, and it had been indicated in the Miami Herald on January 1st. Dorothy? Yes, Chuck. The results of the proposed new flight attendant contract, the TWU, on January 17, 1991, rejected the proposed new contract submitted by EAL by over an 80% majority. I'm related to Eastern's battle to stay alive, but yet someone related fuel. The war in the Persian Gulf had started. It began about 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, January 16th, when U.S., British, French, and Saudi aircraft began attacking strategic locations around Baghdad and other important military objectives. Airstrikes continued January 17th with apparent surgical bombing of military objectives. Eastern's battle is lost. January 18, 1991, Eastern Airlines announced at approximately 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time that it would shut down all operations at midnight, January 18th. Very sad day. In a later conference, Trustee Martin Chagru stated that the decision to shut down was made at 4.30 p.m. on January 18th when it became apparent that time and resources had just run out. Please tune in next week when we present Art Birchgott's comments uh, in a Repartee magazine article dated spring of 93. Unfortunately, it is a sad day for a once great airline and proud airline that ceased flying operations on January 18, 1991. How in the hell did events take place so fast to reduce a world-class airline to zero. It is easy to say deregulation, Lorenzo, unions, management, Borman, Bryant, them, but hopefully not us, the employees. In the article, Art goes on to say, Once I heard Captain Eddie remark after viewing some rather plush executive office furnishings in Miami, you fellows are eating high off the hog. Just be sure you don't eat the whole hog. January 19, 1981, a press conference was held at Eastern at 10 a.m. January 19th, in Eastern's executive office, building on the Miami base, at the conference, Trustee Chagru stated that many reasons contributed to Eastern's downfall, including high fuel prices, a recession, deregulation, labor problems, and competition. He praised the Eastern workers for continuing to operate a first-rate airline and said that it was just a matter of running out of time. Chagru will preside over the liquidation of assets, and about 300 out of 18,000 employees will remain on the job to help administer and maintain the aircraft. 
He also stated that he will he still hoped to attract a buyer to take over the remains of the airline. It was mentioned that the debt to secure creditors was about one billion dollars and that of unsecured creditors about two billion dollars. That's our end of part two for tonight, and uh, I want to open it up for discussions. Uh, I have a couple of things I want to ask our uh, listeners and our host, but uh, any comments about uh, part two tonight that you've heard, that you lived through, I'd like to talk about it right about now. Uh, Yeah, uh, Neil, I'm sorry. Uh, my son Mike was in the rapid deployment force, or whatever they call it, in the military. He was an Apache pilot, a Cobra pilot, also in the Army, and he was on standby to go wherever word anything happened worldwide. And when Saddam invaded Kuwait, he went to travel over there, along with about some pilots and a mechanic, but no airplanes. And he told me, and I was worried about it because he's in the rapid deployment force. He's over there with Saddam thinking about invading Kuwait, uh, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia. And he said, well, we had a 9 millimeter pistol, and that's about all. And if he was to evade, we were supposed to sort of shoot nine bullets and then throw it at him and run. Well, that didn't sound very good to me, his father, you know, and what happened. But uh, as you know, they went over there and they did not do it. He did not, Saddam not do anything because he knew that these were Americans there and they were waiting on their helicopters and tanks. And they finally did show up, and we know what happened after that. They, they drove him out of Kuwait right back up in there. But because of that, Eastern bankruptcy and uh, Eastern shutdown and termination got very little publicity. And I was at a steak restaurant here in the Congress, Georgia that night watching, eating, and we got up to leave, and CBS came on and said, they're shooting over, over Baghdad. And I said, oh, my God, here they go. And they did, and they shoved it a lot of time, and his forces all the way back. But that was the end of Eastern, but it was overshadowed by a couple of days earlier when Eastern went bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, we can go on forever and ever and ever and what happened to our retirement. But uh, I'd program for another time, maybe next week. Okay, over to you. (laughs) Okay. Any other comments? I I wondered about Yeah, Chuck, go ahead. Um, This is one of the first times, and I read a lot about this, as you know, on the Internet and everything, that uh, we had such a, a good article that Art wrote and it was so concise telling you exactly what happened um a couple of you guys books were really good at that and george had come on a couple of times telling his uh, his experience with what happened but this this chronological of events of happening the way art had set up is probably one of the best i've ever seen i agree with you chuck and uh for I that reason so. For that reason, we're going to put it back in its original form instead of being a script that we're doing. Uh, we're going to put it in uh, the uh, book that's uh, still under 
uh, under work, uh, the wings of many part two. And uh, because I need, I think uh, it needs to be heard and uh, are read. And we're doing the hearing part uh, in these three series. And they're always uh, available on archive uh, and uh, for anyone that wants to go back and review it. But it is a remarkable uh, chronological events. I mean, from the 20s, the 1920s, all the way up through the last day. Uh, now, part three, which is coming up next week, uh, as the airline is being shut down, these are pretty much notes by art that I want everyone to hear uh, about to what his thoughts were. It's just like he was talking about hell, how could they do this uh, to an airline like Eastern to bring it down to zero? Well, he has more thoughts, and we're going to deliver those next week. Uh, what Eastern Express, did any of you guys uh, know any of the fellows that were operating Eastern Express, and what kind of airplanes were they using? I forgot. I remember them parked alongside of our uh, uh, gates there in Atlanta for the most part. Uh, I remember and the colors of the airplanes. Do, do any of you guys remember the the uh, type airplanes? Yeah, they were flying a uh, twin engine turboprop, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a and I flew it a couple of times, and it was uh it was not a really great airplane. Uh, the guys that were flying it were not carried away with it. I don't know, but. Uh, a lot of those guys were trying to get on with Eastern at the time when they came on, but uh, maybe it's a good thing they went somewhere else and probably ended up with Captain on a different airline somewhere. Didn't we have about a 30, Eastern have about a 30% stake in that Express yeah, airline or something like something that? Something like yeah. that. Something like that, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, for some reason, I think they might at one time have had a, a four engine high wing. A uh, turboprop airplane. I'm not sure if they did or not. My memory is very vague on that. But my basic memory is they were flying some type of twin-engine turboprop, Embraer or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Something like that. Mike, are you back with us? I'm back with you. I guess we had a inter- uh, thunderstorm going through here. An interruption of power. <laughs> Zapped you. Oh, it finally got. <laughs> It finally got here. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a remarkable story from uh, start to finish. And uh, it's it's just so sad, the finishing of it, it, because uh, it's hard to believe that people now that are younger than 40 years old uh, have never heard of Eastern Airlines. That's right. And, And, you know, from 19, 19, what, 1986? Uh, to to ninety one. I mean, everything just went to hell in a basket, just like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were just observing, trying to, you know, the Alpha and IM and flight attendants unions. We we were just shoved aside. Yeah, yeah. Sure were. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, participating in tonight's shows, guy. Guys, uh, as we know. Yesterday was a remarkable day 
50 years ago, and and the radio show would like to pay tribute to the uh, Apollo 11 crew that successfully landed and walked on the moon July 20th. It was the day before yesterday uh, at 2019. And uh, I saw this ed- editorial in the uh, Jacksonville newspaper, and it's syndicated, of course. And I think it uh, is well worth reading. It's not that long, but it goes to say America's astronauts are the epitome of duty, honor, and country. Not long after Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, in 1969, Arthur Tom Wolfe asked himself a simple question. What makes a man willing to sit on top of an enormous Roman candle and wait for someone to light the fuse? Wolfe's answer came when the wife of told him that came years after of research and interviews with America's first group of astronauts, the Mercury 7, Wolf reduced their extraordinary abilities to three simple words, which became the title of his 1979 book and remain watchwords for bravery in the American lexicon. The right stuff. Yep. Dis- despite repeated probing, Wolf discovered that it was not in the nature of astronauts to deconstruct courage, ironically, because it wouldn't be the right stuff. In their world, where split-second decisions were required to avoid catastrophe, reflective thought could be deadly. They were happy to discuss the risk and calculated risk because as fighter and test pilots, Risk was something that was quantifiable, not so with an analyzing courage, which fell into the uncomfortable domain of psychology. My hope was that the passage of time had lowered their defenses enough to finally review what they considered to be the right stuff. The answers from these mostly octogenarian men Many were, men were not what I was expecting. The real right stuff, the true source of their courage, they argued, revolved around two virtues that would sound alien to modern ears. Pursuit of the common good and believing in something greater than oneself. To find the courage to sit on top of that rocket, says Apollo 8's Bill Anders, one of the first three humans to have seen Earth from the moon. You have to believe not just in the mission, but in duty, honor, country, and the common good. I felt it my duty to serve America, said Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon. People today need to think more about serving the common good instead of their own selfish needs. The unbridled egotism infecting many of today's political leaders, the chest-thumping of our sports stars, and America's obsessive pursuit of celebrity is precisely 
the wrong stuff. As a result of their life-changing view of our small planets from the desolate moon, the astronauts' commitment to the common good was elevated on a planetary scale. The mantra that provided their building blocks for courage, duty, honor, country now reads, duty, honor, planet Earth. If there is any lesson to be learned on this 50th anniversary of the moon landing, it should be that humans find the right stuff to pursue the common good of planet Earth instead of the tribalism now infesting every level of society. And that article was written by Basil Hero, who is the author of The Mission of a Lifetime, Lessons from the Men Who Went to the Moon. And he wrote this uh, for the inside source internet uh, dot com internet. And I think it uh, it tells a good story. It really does. And so that's our comment and our tribute for the uh, the astronauts of Apollo 11. A remarkable job. Some people still don't believe that we've landed uh, man uh, man on the moon. Thoughts? Same people who think the Earth is flat. Amen, <laughs> brother. Amen. That guy. There you go. Where were where were you guys uh, on that day? Where were you, Neil? Oh, I was. That thanks you. Thank you for asking. I had just we had just bought a cabin up on Lake Lanier, and uh, I guess I just went out after a trip. I went up to Lake Lanier, and uh, I was just uh, kind of thinking about I don't know different things or whatever, and um, uh, I I turned the television on and. Lo and behold, I was seeing something that I couldn't believe that uh, they were talking about. Uh, and I, then I saw, you know, the actual footsteps as it was delivered by the televisions. So, yeah, where were you guys? I was sitting in my garden. I was sitting in my uh, uh, home here in Atlanta with my nose stuck to the television. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was sweating it out, man. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Eastern is as good as it's always been. I was at Kennedy uh, working on the evening shift, and they uh, they were kind enough to get uh, little TV sets, black and white uh, TV sets for all the departments at Hangar 9 there at Kennedy. And we all, uh, they all had rabbit ears on those TV sets, and some of them <laughs> wouldn't work depending on the position you were. But we finally got one that worked pretty good, and we all gathered around that, and we all watched it while we were on the clock. Yeah. Yeah, man. My, I, I, I was, I had my kids there watching it, and they don't remember it, but uh, I did. And God Almighty, it was, oh. Well, you know, have you seen the series that uh, some of the uh, cable news networks have been doing? I saw one the CNN just did, and uh, great. Uh, program. Oh man, I think I, I recorded all of them. It's unbelievable. Some of my wife, you know, uh, things that that I've seen the last two days, we didn't even know. I mean, it's coming out tonight yeah. about yeah. how they landed and 
Oh, I, I had to have my I had my nose stuck in the TV back in '69. I had my nose stuck in the TV yesterday. Believe me. <laughs> yeah, it, I remember. It's been great. I remember seeing Neil Armstrong and uh, uh, Alan Shepard and a lot of those guys when Peggy and I were living in Pensacola, and they, they had a, a forum over at the. Uh, uh, the convention center over there with all the Navy guys, of course, Pensacola being a Navy, a Navy city. Um, they had uh, brought in all the astronauts that were around Carpenter, uh, you name it, that they were all there. And, and, uh, Chuck, I mean, uh, Kurt Whaley and I went together and we sat there and listened, uh, to these guys, uh, talk about uh, their experiences. And it was remarkable to see these guys. So, yeah, they were heroes. You know, yeah, there's been a lot of stuff, including this afternoon. I saw something I hadn't seen before, and I can't remember exactly what it was. I recorded everything under the sun that I saw, and I was watching something this afternoon about them landing again, and it was completely more than we had heard before on how they actually were searching for a spot to land and how much uh, there's some. People say they had 30, 30 seconds of fuel. Some of them said they had eight seconds of fuel. And But That's the bottom line right. is they got it down. And I'll tell you, I've just been I, – I couldn't get away from the TV. To lie. I couldn't even watch the line of Braves. I had to watch this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they did, Square. They did end up 50-50 with a hated Washington National. Split the series, but uh, I couldn't get my nose off the TV. I'm surprised I'm even here watching, uh, doing this show. You know, I'm not watching reruns. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, you know, I, uh, how about you? Uh, where were you? Who, me? Uh, I was over. I was over in uh, Freeport, Bahamas, at the uh, King's Inn, uh, entertaining thirty. Uh, guests of Eastern Airlines from uh, Paris, France. They were French travel agents, and we had set up a little hospitality suite for them and uh, had two TVs in there, and we watched the whole thing, and uh, they were very impressed, as I was, and it was quite a night. We had several drinks, and it was really good. Hmm. Well, Neil, you know something that if, if you guys had watched, and, and I never really heard much about it, but it's really been a lot on the last uh, 24 hours was with Mike Collins. Of if they had not been able to land safely and take off again or the engine had not lit off to film to re-enter orbit over the moon, what yeah. was he going to do? And yeah. And I had never up until the last 24, 36 hours ever heard what he was – Faced with and what he was thinking and saying and how he was going to be coming back to the moon and knowing those guys were stuck on the moon forever. And it just, oh, it just floored me to hear what he had to say. And yesterday, I don't know if y'all saw it, there was something called Confessions of the Apollo Missions, and they had all these guys, about seven or eight of them, and they, this was just made two or three weeks or a month ago, and they were all guys, and they were sitting there talking about it. And, and Mike Collins was there, and uh, Aldrin was there, and I noticed Mike Collins for some reason wasn't wearing socks, and I don't know why I fascinated on that, but he had long legs sticking out, but no socks. But anyhow, he was talking about 
what he was faced with. And it never occurred to me what he would be faced with if they couldn't get off the moon. And, you know, that was that would be a biggie. And you go back and think about it. What would you do going off and knowing you were coming back all by yourself? Yeah, there, was, really there, were so many, there were so many what-ifs mm-hmm. that uh, you could talk about. What if, what if, you know. And uh, I want to ask, uh, Renee, are you with us up there in Canada? Uh, yes, I just got here. I'm listening to your show. It sounds great. Well, we missed you, Renee, but I want to ask you, where were you and what were you doing when uh, these guys landed on the moon? Uh, I remember them landing on the moon, but I can't say that I remember where I was. I was probably probably in operations, working flights or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it was a it was a dramatic evening, and uh, it's just you know maybe this is why people still don't believe we ever went to the moon because it's it's just something that uh, and and now we're talking about Mars. Uh, First of all, why are we going, and who would want to go? Mm. You know, you talking get about people, people don't believe it. Did y'all, any of y'all see the news today and yesterday afternoon about this idiot that was harassing uh, Buzz Aldrin? This was much later after the moon, that he was lying, and he was a coward, and yeah. he could not. It, it was all phony, and it was a denier. And he was following Buzz Aldrin around. It looked like it was in some subdivision, or, I mean, some uh, shopping center or something. And he was just raising hell. And they had cops there. This guy just came. He said, you're a liar, and you're a coward. You double. And Buzz Aldrin knocked the hell out of him. <laughs> I see. Oh, no. <laughs> Try to go on and Google it. Google and see my buzz all in cold cocks. <laughs> he knocked the yeah, I, re- I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, I never saw it before. Never heard of it. But they showed it repeatedly just after. Well, <laughs> he laid Jim under that a, gun. Took him out with one punch. He had the right stuff. He did. He had the right stuff. He, he had the right idiot stuff. Then you were a coward and you were a liar. You know. Just, Buzz had all he could take out of it, and he laid yeah. into it, yeah. cold cocking. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. They had well. on the internet the other night. They showed pictures of all the trash that we've left there, and one of the oh, things yeah. that most people don't know is, you know, they hit the golf ball, right? Well, it was right. actually four golf balls, and the other three are sitting on the ground. Get a mulligan. I don't know. The ball left. The ball left the moon. Did Alan Shepard use a uh, seven iron? Yeah, I think it was. Oh. Uh, All I know is I wish I could have done that that good. <laughs> well, oh, well, we we we've had uh, quite a year this year, and we're gonna. We're going to review a lot of events that happened uh, 50 years ago in a show, uh, a few shows from now, when Dorothy's going to tell us about some of the shows we've got coming up. But uh, I'd like to express our deepest sorrow uh, that we announced that uh, we had the passing of Captain Harold Hal Nord, Jr., uh, Saturday the 20th, man, 
uh, how was a faithful Eastern employee and a dedicated REPA member and uh, a very good friend of mine. Hall was 90 at his uh, passing. Uh, Hal Nord was 90 at his passing, and um, he was on the Pilots uh, Scholarship Foundation and selecting Auburn University for the purpose of helping young students wanting to have an aviation career. And I had the pleasure of going with Hal, uh, Hal up to Auburn uh, when we talked to uh, those folks about uh, handling the scholarship for the uh, deserving uh, aviation career-minded young people. And uh, Hal was a great guy. Uh, and, Jim, I think you knew him pretty well, too. Oh, yeah. He, ab- with, he uh, absolutely Reba. was. Good guy. Good guy. Yeah. So, uh, Hal, we'll miss you, and um, I'm glad that uh, I had the chance to know Hal. Uh, Dorothy, what do you have coming up here? Well, Mr. Producer, we have quite a bit to say. Let me first give you the future shows, and then I'll go into some of our increase in donations, which make us all very happy. Uh, As we said, uh, part two of three will continue next week on the last heartbeats of an American legacy airline, Uh, followed by 1st of August, around 8th or 5th of August. We'll be flying with Arthur Godfrey. Good memories on that. Uh, Followed by famous people who have died in air disasters and the causes. And then we'll have Remembering the Summer of 1969, which will be another great one. So uh, be sure to look in. We have the website telling you exactly when they're going to occur and some of the promos that you can read on it as to what we're talking about. Now, the other good news for the EAL radio show is that we had a great increase in donations, and it's been absolutely wonderful uh, seeing them all uh, this week. Uh, I'm ecstatic. Uh, our uh, host, uh, Captain, uh, former Captain Michael Scott, donated $200 on July 21st, and we want to thank him so much for all the members and all of the hosts. We so appreciate the contribution, and thank you not only for being one of our sponsors, which we are thrilled about, but also to be a member as our host every week with us. Um, Mike, I'm going to read you a little bit of your background. Uh, You joined uh, us as a member in January of 2013, and for Eastern, you were an Eastern mechanic, lead maintenance foreman, who left Eastern in 1979 and got a flying job. You flew co-pilot on the B-737. You were flight engineer, co-captain, captain chief pilot on the B-727. You flew 90% international. You also have the Gulfstream 2, 4, and HS-125. Uh, You retired at the age of 75 and in August of 2016, so we've been happy to have you ever since. (laughs) Now you own a 1933 WACO UBF biplane, and you have that based in Long Island. Well, the uh, donations didn't stop there. We had former Eastern Captain Joe Holub, 
who sent in a donation of $100 on July 19th. Now, Joe is a member since July of 2015, and he, too, worked as an Eastern pilot from January of 68 to March of 89. His dad also, Eastern Captain Lou Hollop, that some of you may remember, worked for Eastern from March 3rd of 41 to December of 1973. By the way, Joe sent his donation by the mail, and I want to read a, a note that he sent along with that. He said he wanted to make sure we received the donation, but in addition, he wanted to say, you folks do a fine job. Keep up the good work, especially since the EAO retiree newsletter will probably be going out of business. Also, the note paper that he used was really unique. It was the Keep em Flying C-47, That's All Brother Photo uh, by Scott Slocum. That was just beautiful. We loved seeing it, uh, Joe. It was great. And, again, I thanks so much for your generous contribution. But it didn't stop there either. We had Sharon Mel, who donated $45 on January 21st. Excuse me. <clears throat> she is from Maryland and a member since October 2016. Now, she, too, worked for Eastern a few years in reservations. And then the remainder of her time, she was uh, in the planning department in New York City and Miami. Another member since January of 2011, Carl Stahl, sent in a $50 donation. Carl is from Uniondale, Pennsylvania, and he worked for Eastern in Tampa. And Steve Rocco, he sent in a $40 donation. He lives here in western Florida and a member who joined us on December 8, 2014. Now, Leroy Hutchins sent in a donation of $40, and that was on July 21st, and he is 84 years old now from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He joined Eastern uh, 2011. I'm, I'm sorry, he joined us uh, at 2011, and he worked at Eastern in Miami from December of 62 to September of 83 in various departments during his 21 years with Eastern. Revenue accounting, communications, marketing training, which was his favorite, he said, maintenance, capital planning, and finished up in technical support services was the best 20 years of his work and career. And we have one more that donated this week, Carl Stahl, $50, and he lives in Uniondale, Pennsylvania. Uh, we have a couple people. We have uh, Nick Malucci, who is uh, uh, sent us a note saying his check is in the mail. And as they say, Dorothy, the check is in the mail. Thanks so much for what you all do to keep the spirit alive. We appreciate every single member that we have. And those are the members who sent in donations, are our sponsors, just as Reba, who is one of our sponsors, and uh, we just want to thank everyone and saying that this is keeping our legacy alive with our EAL radio show. And we come every week on Monday evenings. And on Thursday, we have one week we have from the Eastern Files, and the other week we have uh, old-time radio. 
Old Time Radio has Don Gagnon and Neil as the hosts. Uh, so, again, we thank everyone for that, and, and you can't imagine how we appreciate it because, honestly, with the rising cost of everything and the fact that Neil has been uh, generously uh, doing this, performing this show and taking care of all the costs on it until Reaper stepped in to help us and a few of our members. So without your help, we could not be on the show. And I know our hosts will uh, join me in thanking you all for such generosity. Uh, now one other thing about the donations. Um, Neil's book, Wings of Many, goes along with the beautiful Eastern Bowen 737-800 aircraft. Um, with a $40 donation, you will receive both and your help helping us, as I said, to keep our radio show and the message of Eastern on and out there by keeping us on the air. Please consider making a donation. And better, better hurry, folks. We have a few left. Uh, there is about eight or nine left, and we have a couple reserved for those people that have sent their check-in. So uh, please... Uh, Join us and uh, have a little fun watching this uh, 737-800. It's beautiful. Uh, we want to mention, too, Reaper has the first annual reunion, September 4th to the 6th, Wednesday to Friday, and it's at the Embassy Suites in Kennesaw, Georgia. Reaper has all the information and their application on reaperonline.com slash reunion. And Jim Holder, too, has some extra 2019 repartee and other magazines. For those who want one, just send your email in to me at host at EALradioshow.com, and I'll make sure that Jim uh, Holder gets your uh, address. Now, I want to say one more thing. We have Jim Hart, who uh, I talked to. He's doing very well. Uh, he should join us probably in three or four weeks as soon as he gets back in his seat. He did have some surgery uh, going in um, uh, Martha's Vineyard, but he's uh, home from the hospital doing quite well, and he's going to try to call in as soon as he's up to it. So thanks, Jim, uh, for letting us know, and please keep well. Back to you, Mr. Producer. Uh, just to update you on how many of these beautiful, like you say, beautiful 737-800 aircraft uh, available. I've sent out three of them today. I've got four that will be sent out tomorrow. I've got two in reserve for those that uh, want <laughs> us to uh, hold them until their check comes in the mail. And then that leaves us about six left. So, folks, if you want these uh, beautiful airplanes, and I've got one on my desk, and it is gorgeous. It's a beautiful airplane. Even though uh, when I was with Eastern, or uh, most of us uh, that uh, have been on the show, we didn't have the 737 or any of the 737s with Eastern. But the colors and just the model itself, it's a heavyweight type of model. It's not one of these cheap plastic ones. It's a beautiful, beautiful airplane that uh, would uh, grace your desk or your shelf and your den or wherever. Um, it, uh, it's a pretty airplane. So uh, why don't you be one of the uh, six remaining ones 
because we're getting down to the bottom of the box as it came to me <laughs> and, and yes, uh, or and it came to Dorothy and, and you gave it to me. Yeah. Right, and there won't be any more because we got those from the anonymous investor yeah. who sent them to me to have our program uh, get donations through this way. So we are so appreciative of that donor. You know, one of the remarks um, Neil, you, Yeah. Go ahead. Neil, Neil. Jim here. Uh, I believe I heard in Dorothy's uh, remarks that some fellow from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, went to work for Eastern in 1962. I think that's what I heard, and that he was there for a long period of time. Well, I'd like for Dorothy to let that guy know that uh, old Jim Holder here was a 1960 graduate of the University (laughs) of Southern Mississippi. Now, that's not true. I was a graduate of Mississippi Southern College, and it didn't become a university until two, oh, wait, let's see, what, about five years later. But I would be (laughs) delighted. I'm just so excited to hear somebody from Hattiesburg is is on our group here. And if you can get in touch with that young fella or old fella, tell him this old fella would be glad to send him three copies of Repartee Magazine to to get rid of some of these damn magazines I got. So, Dorothy, if you can take care of that for me, I'd appreciate it. I, yeah, I hey, Jim. Mike Scott, hey, I sent Mike Scott 10 magazines, I think, the other day. And, uh, yeah, you did. I, Mike, thank you, man. <laughs> you want some more? <laughs> Anyhow, seriously, uh, I, I, I did graduate from Mississippi Southern College, as we called it then, and now it's university. They call it South Mississippi, but it was Mississippi Southern back then that uh, I'd be glad to send him some magazines or something. And hey, I, hell, I'm sorry Jim, I missed his name. Jim Holder, I got a yeah. suggestion. Why don't you, if we can get a hold of uh, of the uh, gentleman, maybe you can communicate with him and invite him to the the uh, Reefa re, uh, reunion that you're having. And that's not too far oh, from Hattiesburg. Yes, and you guys yes, could Lord, have a, yes, a reunion yeah, of I'm, sorts. Yeah, get him. Mike Cox, Mike Scott. <laughs> I'm trying to get Mike home. I told him I'd buy two beers. And he said, he's, was, he's counter-offered with a six-pack. So that I was wanna... Leroy Hudson, H-U-T-C-H-I-N-S. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. get in touch with him. Mike. See if you can get his address. I'll send him some magazines and invite him to come to to the uh, Reefa reunion, as we call it now, in September. Okay. Uh, I you do know. have his address, but let me first get permission from Lee to do that, and I'll be happy. Okay. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure you, you know, won't well, mind, and I'm sure I'd love receiving them. What we are right. talking about tonight is uh, uh, the Eastern family. That's what it's all about, and as one person said, we're uh, holding it together, and uh, the radio show is having a lot to do with it, as well as Repa and the silver liners, uh, and uh, we hate to see EARA uh, quieted, but uh, there are other uh, associations like our radio show and the flight attendants that uh, that are there, and um, so and REPA, and so. Uh, but here's a great idea: is go to the website, and we have over a thousand members now. And go through the membership roster and see uh, if uh, you recognize anyone there. They're, they're there, a little profile uh, sometimes is entered, uh, like Dorothy read tonight. And uh, 
just kind of jump around in there and see if you do recognize it and uh, maybe your former colleagues with the airlines. Great place to visit. And um, most most of our pictures are in the post office anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much for doing a great show tonight. And we're going to put the airplane down gently. And uh, hear those three tires or two tires hit the concrete. And. Uh, Captain, as usual. Be sure to tune in again next Monday, July 29th, and when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberwave. And the radio show continues with part three, the last heartbeat of an American legacy airline, the final days of Eastern Airlines. With this, we sign off by playing the sign-off music made popular by the champagne music man himself, Lawrence Welk, and a one, and a two, and a three. Take it away. Good night, Eastern family and friends from around the world, and good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Good night. Great show. Great show, Neil. Yep. Great show. Thanks a lot, Great all. Show. Looking forward to next Just the wall of the fist. Yeah. <laughs> there <Yep>. you go. <laughs> Very Thanks informative. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.